Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Businessman wins his party's nomination by surprise, running on a platform that promises to sweep out the corruption, protect America, and limit overseas engagement. He promises that because he is not part of the political machine, he can't be bought when he enters the White House. What year is it? 2016? No, you wouldn't expect that from a tease with all this theatricality, would you? No, we're talking about 1940, and the candidate is Wendell Wilkie, Indiana businessman, newcomer to the GOP, and political neophyte. I'm in business and proud of it, the 48-year-old Wilkie told a crowd. Nobody can make me soft-pedal any fact in my business career. After all, business is our way of life, our achievement, our glory. It was the only other time in American history that a major political party gave its shimmering hat of leadership to someone whose chief qualification was having been a man of the corner office, a C in the CEO, and more than an average-sized cheese. present administration has spent $60 billion. The New Deal stands for doing what has to be done by spending as much money as possible. I propose to do it by spending as little as money as possible. This is one issue in this campaign that I intend to make crystal clear before the conclusion of the campaign so that everybody in this country may understand the tremendous waste of their resources and money that have taken place in the last seven and a half years. Oh, it's good to be back. More in a moment after a word from our sponsor. The Obama administration is in the last six months, and maybe you're wondering what it's been like to work there for the last eight years. Well, right now, Slate's working podcast, its wonderful working podcast, the brainchild of David Plotz long ago, is doing an entire mini-season featuring people who work at different corners of the White House, from those who open the mail to the president's head speechwriter. This is my dream podcast, and I wish I'd thought of it, but I didn't. Anyway, someone else did, and... It's a great listen. So go listen to it. You can find Slate's working on iTunes uh, or wherever you get your podcasts or at slate.com slash working. I'm so glad to be back from working on my book, Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History, available now for pre-order. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the podcast. I've missed all of you out there, but it's your fault. I had to go off and write the book and its new chapters. You have been such loyal and faithful listeners, and you asked for a book, so I had to go write it. And it turns out you can't just turn whistle stops into chapters. You have to totally re-research them and rewrite them, let alone write the chapters and research the chapters that I've never done yet for the podcast. Anyway, we're back in the workshop now, and let's get moving. As the Republican Party gathered in Philadelphia for the 1940 convention, of the top three candidates, Manhattan District Attorney Thomas Dewey... Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan and Senator Robert Taft, who you'll remember from 1952, they were the usual type of fellow. They were politician-shaped, experienced in the ticklings and whisperings of the party and wards and their fingers nubbly from the massaging and back-scratching required in the business. Then there was Wendell Wilkie, whose alliterative name made him sound like a Dickens character. Not a grubby politician, but a sunny-faced guy who operated the ice cream bicycle. When Wilkie arrived in the city of brotherly love, in June of 1940, he headed right for the bar. 
No, literally, he headed right for the bar. This was a candidate we could all get behind, and if we did get behind him, we probably would have been hidden from view. Well, that's not exactly fair. He wasn't overweight. He was just a little stout. He was not going to make it in a sprint to that bus pulling away from the stop. If you mix Jackie Gleason and Huey Long, you'd make a Wendell Wilkie which also now suddenly sounds like a drink you'd make at the end of a nice hot summer day. John Goodman would play him in the movie. I'm certain of it. He also wasn't going to beat you in that race to the end of the block because he was a chain smoker, his lower rung of teeth yellow from the habit. It's amazing what the television age has done to the quality of candidate teeth. There is one picture of Woodrow Wilson smiling, which would appear gruesome to our tender modern eyes. His teeth are a horror show. Kennedy changed this with his television appeals. Of course, when you look at Jack Kennedy's teeth in 1960, which greeted you before the senator did, it was like his teeth were making up for all the bad teeth that had preceded him. His face was like a row of white chiclets. Wilkie had a rakish glow about him. He was glad to see you in his tousled hair and unmade bed aspect, looked right at home as he pressed a warm shoe against the brass rail of that bar. Shall we join him? Writer Damon Runyon picks up the scene from here. He was so big and tough... Then he never budged an inch from the bar while everybody was scrimming and scrounging trying to get something. Then he said, let's have another, and began shaking hands all around, and every time he shook hands, he ruined somebody's dukes. He had a handshake like a guy squeezing an orange. He left the Bellevue and went all over town, and he left hundreds of guys so they couldn't pick up a fork for a week. Damon Runyon had a man crush. I rely on this account and a good bit of this episode from the book Five Days in Philadelphia by Charlie Peters. Here's what Wilkie said upon arriving at the GOP convention in Philadelphia. It may sound familiar. I have no campaign manager, no campaign fund, no campaign headquarters. All the headquarters I have are under my hat. I have no ghostwriters. I've entered into no deals or understanding with any political leaders or anybody else. If I am accidentally nominated and elected president of the United States, I shall go in completely free of any obligations of any kind. I have, however, traveled about the country, presented my views to the people, and exhibited myself. If, as a result of this, I am nominated for the president at the Republican Convention in Philadelphia, I should be greatly gratified. The club of non-politicians who have won their party nominations is not big. But what's more amazing about Wilkie is how a man who had been a Democrat in 1939 could sweep in and win the GOP nomination. I mean, even Trump has been a Republican for at least two years. Wilkie had also donated to Roosevelt and voted for him in 1932. That's why when Wilkie arrived at the Republican convention, the reception was somewhat chilly. Wendell, you know that back home in Indiana, it's all right if the town whore joins the church, said Senator Jim Watson. But they don't let her lead the choir on the first night. But the problems didn't stop there for Wilkie. He was a Wall Street lawyer while the memory of the Great Depression was still fresh. And while the blame for Wall Street that had attended it was also fresh, when he ran, he was actually no longer a Wall Street lawyer. He was the head of the Commonwealth and Southern Utilities Corporation. But being a utility boss wasn't much better than being a Wall Street lawyer. And finally, Wilkie was the son of two German immigrants, a notable departure from today's politics where Donald Trump has suggested profiling Muslims and claims that second-generation immigrant Muslims are a problem, which is to say... U.S. citizens born in the United States who just happen to have immigrant Muslim parents are a problem. Donald Trump also says he doesn't want to allow any new Muslim immigration. 
1940, the GOP convention was taking place just two months after the Germans had launched their blitzkrieg against France and taken over France. They were the German menace, and nevertheless, the Republican Party was now nominating the son of German immigrants. The U.S. may not have been anxious to join the war, but they were nevertheless plenty wary of the Germans. If the GOP had the feeling about Germans that their nominee now does about Muslims, Wilkie wouldn't have even gotten in the convention hall. At the start of 1940, the Germans were on the march and FDR was standing still. The great majority of the country was isolationists determined to keep out of the war. Nearly 80% said they didn't want to go into the war. Republicans were against the war, but also had a view that the war wasn't going to be a world war. Herbert Hoover was asked after a speech in January of 1940, what should be the policy of the United States if Hitler would seriously threaten the existence of France and England? Remember, that's in January of 1940. He hasn't yet taken over France. And Hoover replied in January of 1940, it was too impossible an event to warrant comment. In other words, the United States wouldn't have to get involved because Hitler wasn't going to do all that. Roosevelt's second administration was troubled. He had triumphed in 1936 when he won all but two states. Then a few months later, he shot himself in both feet with his court packing scheme. Supreme Court had declared parts of his program unconstitutional, that New Deal program. You're familiar with that. So he proposed to get around that by increasing the size of the court. Congress, including many in his party, rebuffed him. The economy also was having trouble. A recession in 1937 was blamed on the budget balancing policies of the Roosevelt administration. He ultimately got rid of the budget balancing policies and returned to spending. And the economy liked the new pump priming, but that hiccup in 37 made people nervous. In political terms, FDR had also some issues with his own Democrats. In, in June 1938, two years before that Republican convention we started with, he gave a fireside chat in which he told Democrats who didn't follow his New Deal line that they wouldn't get his support. It's known as his purge campaign. And in that fireside chat in which he's warning Democrats, uh, he makes a quaint little argument uh, for the power of reasoned argument in politics. There will be a lot of mean blows struck between now and Election Day. By blows, I mean misrepresentation and personal attack and appeals to prejudice. It would be a lot better, of course, if campaigns everywhere could be waged with arguments instead of with blows. I hope the liberal candidates will confine themselves to argument and not resort to blows. For in nine cases out of ten, the speaker or the writer who, seeking to influence public opinion, descends from calm argument to unfair blows, hurts himself more than his opponent. In the spring of 1940, no one knew whether FDR would run for a third term. Meanwhile, the Germans were advancing. Since his State of the Union in 1939, FDR had been wrestling with a way to, as he put it, bring home to the aggressor governments the aggregate sentiments of our own people. Since the German invasion of Poland in 1939, which had caused Britain and France to declare war, nothing had happened on the Western Front for many fronts. It was called the Phony War at the time until May of 1940 when the Germans attacked France. Paris fell by June, just days before the GOP convention. The war was starting in earnest, but the GOP had fielded a number of candidates opposed to action overseas. The hurricane of events, as FDR called them, we're going to overtake the GOP and its strong strain of isolationism. Though Wilkie was not an interventionist, 
He did favor greater U.S. involvement in World War II to support Britain and other allies. So he was more hawkish than his opponents, and with events moving at such speed, that became an attractive position for him to hold and was one of the reasons things would go better for him than they looked like they would go when this campaign started. Let's look at the GOP field. At age 37, Thomas Dewey was so new and inexperienced that Interior Secretary Harold Ickes mocked his age and inexperience, saying when Dewey joined the race that he'd thrown his diaper into the ring. John Kennedy, of course, wasn't much older, and like Kennedy, Dewey tried to overcome concerns about his youth by participating in the nominating primary process. You'll remember the whistle stop on Kennedy's West Virginia primary, right? If you don't remember that, I have a book and an audiobook for you to buy. Then came Wilkie's 2,500-mile train tour through the Midwestern states. The turnouts, even in tiny towns, impressed people. In Miles City, Montana, not a large metropolis, he was greeted by a crowd of 500. In Lincoln, Nebraska, he attracted the largest political crowd in the city's history, and in March, he drew 16,000 to the Chicago Stadium, and an incredible 20,000 turned out for a barbecue in Washington, Indiana. So what's amazing about this is two things. One, as we remember from our 1948 conversation about Dewey and Truman, is that Dewey was no train master. But here his whistle stop tour in um, 1940 is creating all of this uh, success. He also was just not a warm and fuzzy guy. As one of his aides said, he was as cold as a February iceberg. But in April, Dewey defeated Senator Arthur Vandenberg in two primaries, each time getting more than 60 percent of the vote. The first victory in Wisconsin prompted the New York Herald Tribune's Jack Beal to write, it would be exceedingly hard to head off Mr. Dewey from the Republican nomination. So Dewey in 1940 looked like he was basically taking the route that Kennedy would successfully take in 1960. So who was this Arthur Vandenberg that uh, Dewey was running against? Well, he's a, he was a veteran senator. So you have a young Dewey against uh, an older Vandenberg. He was, he was elected to represent Michigan in 1928. Uh, and he was – at the time, he was an anti-interventionist. He would change his color later. But he is also the candidate most likely to be mistaken for a country doctor. And despite looking like the kind of fellow who sleeps in his half-calf black socks, Vandenberg had a reputation with the ladies. Arthur Crock, a journalist with the New York Times, wrote later, Vandenberg's romantic impulses led to gossip at Washington hen parties, where the hens have teeth and the teeth are sharp. One of Vandenberg's mistresses was Mitzi Sims, the wife of Harold Sims, who was a diplomat at the British Embassy. The reporter Walter Troen claimed that insiders called Vandenberg the senator from Michigan. I had a lot of fun back then. Vandenberg's disdain for the primaries uh, because, remember, they were considered like a waste of time. His disdain for the primaries was most memorably expressed when he said, why should I kill myself to carry Vermont? Which is, if you're any kind of a wry fellow at all, is the kind of thing you should just say around the house when any kind of issue comes up. Uh, your family will think you're they're very impressive indeed. Next up was Robert Taft, the freshman senator from Ohio. By 52, he's no longer a freshman senator. He's Mr. Republican. But anyway, in 1940, he's just the Ohio senator in his first term with the famous dad, William Howard Taft, who had been president. Taft, also an isolationist, said there's a good deal more danger 
of the infiltration of totalitarian ideas from the New Deal circles in Washington than there ever will be from activities of the communists or the Nazis. You'll remember Rubio, Paul, and Cruz, as well as Obama, all ran in their first term. So that is not an, the aberration it might seem. In 1940, with the world ablaze, there were still freshman senators who thought they could run for president. Why did he think he could do it? Well, he had the Ohio machine in him. The, the thing he didn't have, <laughs> although he had the Ohio machine, is he didn't have the Ohio charisma. Uh, like Dewey, he was just not that warm. And unlike Dewey, he was not that into campaigning. Anyway, in March of 1940, the Gallup poll rolls out and it records that Dewey is at 43 percent, Vandenberg at 22 and Taft at 17. No one else much registered at that point. What's Wendell Wilkie doing other than peddling his ice cream bicycle? What Wilkie is doing at this period in 1940 is starting a slow, quiet campaign to build a movement and support among Republicans. Now, Wilkie's an Indiana farmer, right? Or at least that's how he started. He's got that tousled hair and his suits are all kind of askew. But he builds his support within the editorial writing core where he works or has worked among the country club set and the Yale and Princeton alumni club. His main pitch was economic. He was going to save the country from the excesses of the New Deal. It wasn't that he opposed the use of government to solve social problems. That is, it's that he opposed wasteful spending government. He was essentially pitching efficiency. He was so sensitive to the idea that he would be painted as a hard-hearted man of business, he boasted about his liberalism. This clip you're about to hear should sound odd to modern ears for a member of a party in our era, which would come to be associated with conservatism, and mouth the word liberal as a dirty word. Because I am a businessman, of which incidentally I am very proud and was formerly connected with a large company, the doctrinaires of the opposition have attempted to picture me as an opponent of liberalism. But I was a liberal before many of those men heard the word. And I fought for the reforms of the elder La Follette and Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson before another Roosevelt adopted and distorted the word liberal. I believe that the forces of free enterprise must be regulated. I'm opposed to business monopolies. I believe in the right of collective bargaining by labor without any interference and full protection of that obvious right. I believe in minimum standards for wages and maximum standards for hours. And I believe that such standards should constantly improve. I'm in favor of the regulation of interstate utilities, of banking, of the security markets. I believe in federal pensions in adequate old age benefits and in unemployment allowances. I believe that the federal government owes a duty to adjust the position of the farmer with that of the manufacturer. If this cannot be done by parity prices, then some other method must be found without too much regimentation of the farmer's affairs. I believe in the encouragement of cooperative buying and selling and in the full extension of rural electrification. And I believe that the federal government owes a very strong obligation to preserve our natural resources. Wilkie was, in this quiet way, in the beginning of 1940, the classic white knight candidate. We've talked about the white knight candidate before. 
Here's what the White Knight candidate does. He appeals to the editorial writers and the smarty pants at the heads of the newspapers and television networks because he hangs out with them. He has characteristics that they uh, find appealing. He likes to share a drink at the bar. He respects them and their positions. And they think he can just kind of waltz in and take control of the process. Now, usually they're delusional in this and the political experts say you just can't do it. You can't get around the party bosses. But Wilkie started to build this support among the editorial writers and smarty pants journalists in the traditional white knight form. He appeared in the Atlantic Monthly as the author of an article entitled Raise Up America. And then in March of uh, 1940, his name still wasn't mentioned in the polls. But then in April came an issue of Fortune, which appeared uh, – actually, it was in the latter half of March. It was devoted almost entirely to articles for and about Wilkie. That's because Wilkie was friendly with Henry Luce, the Time Life uh, editor-in-chief and also the editor of Fortune magazine. Uh, the editorial praising Wilkie in the in Fortune praised him for preaching just plain common sense that most people agree with. Inside that issue was an article uh, from Wilkie called We the People. And the nature of the Wilkie pitch, in addition to saying that the New Deal was inefficient, was he said that inefficiency could be dangerous. The Democratic administration now in power has abandoned the principle of free enterprise upon which this country's greatness was achieved. In place of that principle, controlling the enterprises of the people by non-elected commissioners, exactly the doctrine that our forefathers rejected when they drove out the king's commissioners and established an independent nation 160 years ago. 50,000 planes will not be produced by mere wishful declarations. That they are needed, he said. Airplanes, as well as all other equipment, are produced only by skilled men in adequately financed industries. Due to the misapplication of our wealth, resources, and manpower in uneconomic activities and deficit financing, we are up against the limiting factors of plant capacity and skilled workers. The idea was that America might not want to get into the war, but it could defend itself against aggression by having a huge army. Wilkie's point was you couldn't have a good and big army if you didn't have a functioning economy. Now, another important thing about the Wilkie pitch is it's coming. He may be hanging out with the Yale and the Princeton boys in the dark paneled clubs, but he was from Indiana. And unlike uh, Donald Trump, who is a figure of New York, Wilkie was and was pitched as a guy from all over the country. Here's a piece from uh, the Chicago Daily Tribune outlining his business career under the heading, His Background Wide. In his 48 years, Wilkie has had a wide background in American life. He knows the East, the Middle East, the West, and the South, as they can be known only by a man who has worked and had varied occupations in all of them. He sold newspapers and did farm work in his youth in Indiana. He harvested wheat in Minnesota dressed oil well tools in Texas, operated a cement block machine in Wyoming, and ran a little tent hotel in Colorado. In California, he was a vegetable picker. In Kansas, he was a schoolteacher and a qualified one. With all his laboring experiences, he found time to graduate from Indiana University. In the World War, he served as a captain in the 325th Field Artillery Regiment. So this is crucial because Wilkie may be the white knight candidate who's the favorite of the elites, but he also has that background 
which makes his appeal more common. We the People, which outlined Wilkie's ideas about restoring the free enterprise system, was quickly reprinted in the Reader's Digest, which had the largest circulation of any magazine in the country. And within two weeks of the article's original appearance in Fortune in late March, Wilkie received more than 2,000 speaking invitations. Drew Pearson, the liberal columnist, wrote, For sheer force of personality and character, I believe Wilkie makes the greatest impact of any man I've ever talked to. He rings true. Check that out. Any any man I've ever talked to, he rings true. Remember when we talked about James G. Blaine in the uh, election of 1884 and they called him the magnetic man? Wilkie has some of that. In May of May 13th, 1940, Life devoted an unprecedented 11-page spread to Wilkie that concluded, in the opinion of most of the nation's political cognoscenti, Wendell Lewis Wilkie is by far the ablest man the Republicans could nominate for president in Philadelphia next month. A vote for Taft is a vote for the Republican Party. A vote for Wilkie is a vote for the best man to lead the country in a crisis. Capturing this dual nature of Wilkie's appeal, Harold Ickes called Wilkie the barefoot boy from Wall Street. So as all these articles are being written and Reader's Digest is popping into the mail slots of houses all across America, things called Wilkie Clubs start to pop up around the country. And it's a grassroots campaign for the farmer from Indiana with all the pals on Wall Street. Chicago Daily Tribune has a piece, talks about headline chain letters used to boost Wilkie in race. How the old-fashioned chain letter was used to promote the candidacy of Wendell L. Wilkie in the pre-convention campaign was related yesterday by Chicago businessmen who were behind Wilkie. Thousands of such letters were received and transmitted by Chicago businessmen in the last few days. Wilkie supporters believe the letters played an important part in the nomination of the utilities executive for the presidency of the Republican convention. Recipients of the letters were urged to write their state delegation chairman to support Wilkie. The recommended message form suggested in the letters was, I want Wilkie. That thousands of persons receiving the letters carried out the suggestion is indicated by reports from Philadelphia telling of the deluge of Wilkie messages upon delegates as the balloting was about to start. Bankers, lawyers, brokers, and doctors were among those who participated in the chain letter promotion. Seldom has a political movement evoked so much enthusiasm in the financial district as did the Wilkie candidacy. One broker reported he had sent Wilkie letters to 30 friends, urging each to send a Wilkie message to the convention and send familiar letters to their friends. So you have the Fortune in Life magazine and all the writers saying Wilkie's great. Then you have Wilkie clubs popping up all over the country. And then you have this chain letter campaign to get the delegates at the convention all wound up. And then, uh, just because uh, we've got to do this in every story where somebody comes out of nowhere, uh, we've got to offer the press view of things in May of 1940 as the Wilkie clubs are growing of his actual chances. This is in the Wall Street Journal, May of 1940. The Great Game of Politics by Frank R. Kent. The Wilkie Movement. The talk about Mr. Wendell Wilkie, which now has become nationwide, is beginning to be taken with a certain degree of seriousness by the politicians. Discussion of him in connection with the Republican presidential nomination is fairly general in the press, and there are a number of persons unauthorized by Mr. Wilkie enthusiastically working on his behalf. The politicians have no notion that he can be nominated. Neither has Mr. Wilkie. The sort of publicity he has been getting recently in the character of the movement is pretty heady wine, but it has not gone to Mr. Wilkie's head. 
which is an unusually clear one. Nevertheless, the spontaneous sentiment that has developed is an extraordinary political phenomenon, the significance of which is not lost upon the more acute observers. They note, for example, that the sentiment is not confined to the conservatives or the so-called upper-bracket voters. It is not in the least a big business movement. On the contrary, some of the most enthusiastic Wilkie supporters comes from liberal and labor circles, and his appeal seems particularly as strong to the little businessman and the small-salaried worker. There's no mystery as to the origin of the Wilkie movement. It sprang from the fact that Mr. Wilkie is trying to protect his property from government confiscation, protested in a voice that reached a great many people and which they understood. Over a period of several years and a series of speeches and magazine articles, Mr. Wilkie expressed his views on public questions and presented his own political philosophy as contrasted with the New Deal, with a courage, clarity, force, and fairness that made a wide and favorable impression without otherwise lifting a finger, without the expenditure of a nickel, and without even the semblance of propaganda or organization, a genuine Wilkie boom for the presidency came into being. It is the sort of thing that happens once in a very long time indeed. Of course, the chances of being nominated are extremely remote. In the first place, he voted for Mr. Roosevelt in 1932, and has been a Republican only since 1936. That's not right, Is 39. How much a convention of native-son Republicans would relish that can be imagined. In the second place, while he firmly believes the New Deal has nearly ruined the country and is certain to do so if continued, he favors the Hull reciprocal trade treaties and regards isolationism as an ostrich doctrine. Obviously, that would not go well with a party which unitedly opposed the Hull program in Congress and clearly trends towards the isolation position. Finally, Mr. Wilkie is conspicuously connected as an executive with one of the great public utility companies against which this administration has spent nearly eight years creating prejudice. Under the circumstances, his nomination would be little short of a political miracle. Nevertheless, the Wilkie movement is intensely interesting. So now we're at the convention. It's June 24th. We're all in Philadelphia. One of the articles leading up to the convention notes that it's amazing that the minority party in America could be holding its own convention. That wouldn't happen anywhere else in the world. So that's the state of affairs in the world in terms of the march of democracy. The convention in Philadelphia was uh, the first to really be televised. Of course, we feel like that's true of several of these conventions because different elements of them were, were televised. In 1952, as you remember, it was the Credentials Committee that was the first one televised. And in 1940, the writing about television at the convention is hysterical. So the New York Times has a piece June 23rd, eyes and ears on the GOP, microphones and telecameras to pick up keynote speech. Convention expected to be televised 200 miles away. The piece starts. The stage is all set in Philadelphia for broadcasting and telecasting the National Republican Convention. The curtain goes up tomorrow. Alphabetically, the broadcasters list the main protagonists as Thomas Dewey, Herbert Hoover, Senator Robert A. Taft, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, and Wendell Wilkie. The cast includes a thousand delegates and their alternatives. The studio audience, in quotes, will number about 11,000 spectators. The piece goes on and on using quotations around words like mics. So in a sentence, large parabolic mics will pick up what the broadcasters describe as the, quote, the crowd atmosphere, unquote band music, and pandemonium, and in a picture of a roving announcer. 
at the National Convention. It says, uh, roving announcers will at the National Convention will carry portable microwave stations for broadcasts from the floor. And it shows this fellow in glasses holding up in front of him what looks like a Zappos box in which you've ordered those five boots you always wanted. And he's got two handles on the side of it, and he's speaking into the big Zappos box like he's ordering bombers to finally bring in the hot stuff. The hot glare of lights that were there for these telecameras were so bright that some of the delegates began to wear sunglasses, and the building became, in the words of Marsha Davenport, a filthy, sweaty hell. As the delegates arrived outside the hall, they were greeted by a 50-piece band that blared away on behalf of Thomas Dewey. Small boys passed out Dewey buttons, Wilkie buttons, and Vandenberg fans got buttons that read, Get on the van wagon with van. Albert McCartney, a Presbyterian clergyman from Washington, D.C., gave the invocation, reminding the delegates that they were gathered in a solemn hour of world tragedy. Dewey and Taft at their hotels, where supporters had placed decorative elephants all over the place, red and yellow circus blankets that read Taft in silver letters in the lobby and the front of the hotel. Both of them held press conferences. Dewey said he favored aiding Britain in the war, but only with surplus materials, no new spending. He felt it was important to keep appealing to the isolationists, so speaking to 500 supporters when he arrived, he said, how about throwing out the warmongers? And aside here, the isolationists weren't just, you know, didn't want to get into a messy war because they wanted to, because they lacked a moral courage. They were all still stung from the absolute horror of World War I. Taft, at his press conference at the beginning of the Republican convention, said that he expected to be nominated after a normal number of ballots, which he later described as three or four ballots. Uh, and he said he wasn't interested in making any deals, that he'd rather remain a senator than become a vice president. The reason he was talking about deals is that Taft and Dewey, there were rumors all day long about a Taft and Dewey deal because neither one of them had the number of delegates necessary and they wanted to stop Wilkie. Why did they want to stop Wilkie? Because he wasn't a Republican. There was a real anti-Wilkie flavor, much like we see with Donald Trump. is people who their whole lives been a part of a party and an ideology think like, what, you can't just come in here and waltz in here and get this? Representing that sentiment was a speaker who said the Republican Party will win in November if it selects from its ranks a leader with a past record of consistent support of Republican policies and principles and whose recent pronouncements are a guarantee to the American people that he will not lead the nation into war. So Wilkie, not pro-intervention, but closer to that than all the rest of the Republican candidates, was not only not a Republican, but that meant he might lead the nation into war. Wilkie arrived, went to the bar, as we mentioned, and then he attended What a Man Wilkie rallies. Here's the way Wilkie is described by the Los Angeles Times in terms of the way he speaks. This is about a press conference that Wilkie held. What he said, of course, was candid and not off the record. He used no qualifying phrases, no deadening qualifications when he made a statement. It was I, I, and nay, nay. He spoke the direct Kansas language of the prairies. He was not hypocritical. He really believed it and made the reporters believe that he believed it. He was not above a wisecrack. Roosevelt had said that he would like to talk over with Mr. Wilkie our defense plans. When the reporters asked Wilkie about the president, he said, sure, I will be glad to see him and talk things over. I've always believed a man should be courteous to his predecessor. He muffed no questions. When he, wouldn't, when he didn't want to talk, he did so. When he couldn't talk on any subject, he said so and explained why. The bulldog asperity 
of Dewey and the bird dog seriousness and self-consciousness of Taft had no counterpart in the big Newfoundland romping glad-eyed Wilkie, which the paper described as an Indiana thoroughbred. So this is the fellow who shows up, and he also, in addition to showing up and being a regular guy who speaks those split plain Kansas truths, he's also, he's working it. So here's a story from Charlie Peter's book. The night he arrives, Wilkie and his wife are met by Arthur Croc and Turner Catledge, two New York Times reporters. And they're talking to Wilkie, and Wilkie invites them to their suite, and when they get there, Croc brings up the idea that Wilkie's going to need a floor manager. Right? He's the outsider. Like, how's he going to do it? And Wilkie said, what's that? Now, Wilkie had been actually an assistant floor manager at a previous convention, but he let Croc and Catledge think that he didn't know what a floor manager was, and they patiently explained that a floor manager was the man who represented the candidate at the convention and corralled delegates. So what Wilkie was up to, according at least to Charlie Peters, is making it look like he didn't know what a floor manager was, so that if he won and put together a number of delegates, it would seem like it was that much more of a groundswell. His support didn't come from a carefully laid out plan. It came from just the the rafters and the passions of the delegates who were there who were swept up in Wilkie fever. Of course, it also, by kind of sucking up to the New York Times columnists and asking them for advice and getting them to explain the, the complicated world of politics, he ingratiated himself to them through making them feel like big shots. In the convention, there was not only the interventionists isolationist split. But there was another, was the the split between liberals and conservatives, which had a sort of culture clash with it. There was the small town America versus the Northeast. Most of the people on the floor, the delegates themselves, represented small town America. Most of the people in the gallery were on the other side. The people in the gallery were the Wilkie folks. But it was a little messy, though, because Wilkie, of course, from Indiana and backed by New Yorkers, he kind of was the synthesis unity candidate. Back when conventions were really about picking candidates, it was far more exciting. They would arrive at the conventions with parallel game plans, and then they'd all run them simultaneously, all appealing to the same audience. It actually would make a great game show today. So to my billionaire listener friends out there, why not do this? Create a bachelorette or a bachelor show or whatever that show is that's called where men compete for women. But compete, do it for governing the country. Smart candidates, they didn't, wouldn't have to be from politics. In fact, make it so they're not. And the smart candidates would have to compete in a series of tests that might actually approximate what a president actually does instead of the tests that candidates face in campaigns for the presidency. And the, these contestants would have to convince delegates, and the delegates would have familiarity with the actual issues. They wouldn't just be voting on ephemeral things. And you, you could find a way to raise the stakes in this game show by forcing risk-taking and emergency decisions uh, to keep the excitement up and to approximate the actual states of a campaign. Maybe you do it with money. Maybe the stakes would be prestige stakes. You know, you'd want to have bragging rights. Or maybe you'd just take somebody, the contestant's family hostages. But you could design the show and then insist that contestants actually wrestle with the issues of the day. The reality of this show is that it would match the reality of reality and not the reality show that we're engaged in right now. Anyway, back then, that's what it was like. The candidates all had strategies, and they were pitching themselves and their ideas for the country, but also, uh, obviously, there was politics involved, but they were all pitching themselves to the delegates. Dewey wanted to have... His strategy was he'd have a huge, big start, and then... He'd build a bandwagon. And this is when bandwagons existed, where if it felt in the room like a guy was winning, people would join that force. They weren't as pledged to candidates as they are today. And Taft's idea was that he would he would uh, have a kind of slow rolling bandwagon. He wouldn't start big, but he would accumulate delegates round by round as 
favorite son candidates lost during various rounds. The favorite son racket is one we don't really have today. But say I'm the governor of Pennsylvania. I run as a favorite son. I have delegates pledged to me. And then anyone who wants to really be the president has to come to me hat in hand and answer my demands. I'm not sure how this would work in the billionaire financed game show, but I think we can work that out. Wilkie was following the Taft accumulate delegate strategy. Little by little, he'd gather up delegates in the various rounds after they'd left their favorite son candidates, and he'd try and create a sense of momentum by winning round by round. A Gallup poll on the eve of the convention had Dewey leading with 47%, Wilkie at 29%, but as the convention started, there was a little bit of a feeling in the air that Wilkie was picking up momentum. Editorial writers were running down Dewey's chances. He was just too young. And also one fun thing, we talk about the betting markets now uh, that are sometimes wrong, but people think that they tell the real truth. At the time, the betting markets didn't really exist in the way they do now, but the stocks of utility companies on the eve of the convention started to do better, which people read as a sign that maybe Wilkie's chances were better than people thought. Meanwhile, with the Germans advancing, the editorial writers and the shift in the tone of the country is turning away from, from isolationism. So Walter Lippmann describes Dewey as a man who changes his views from hour to hour, to hour, always more concerned with taking the popular position than he is in dealing with real issues. He, uh, Lippmann also compared Taft to Neville Chamberlain, saying the same commonplace incapacity to foresee, the same apathy in action. Mr. Taft has admirable qualities, but to nominate and elect him would be to invite for the nation a disaster of unpreparedness and for Mr. Taft personally a tragic ordeal. The idea of Lippmann and others was it wasn't necessarily true that you had to go jump in and fight with the British and the French. But if you didn't take the, the Nazi threat seriously and prepare the country enough, and that's the box he put Dewey and Taft in, then America would be in trouble. Herbert Hoover represented the, the past president, represented the opposite view, the, the isolationist view. He gave a speech and said, every whale that spouts is not a submarine. The 3,000 miles of ocean is still protection. The air forces, tanks, and armies of Europe are useless to attack us unless they can establish bases in the Western Hemisphere. To do that, they must first pass our Navy. It can stop anything in sight now. So why do you need those, all those 50,000 planes, right? We've got a Navy and an ocean. We don't need to prepare like that. Hoover's message didn't get out so well because the microphone didn't work. And the Hoover, Taft, and Dewey people thought that Wilkie's man Pryor, who was on the Committee of Arrangements, had tweaked the microphone to keep the message from getting out. Pryor would later be blamed for uh, something else later. But there was already conspiracy in the air before the voting even took place. Finally, the voting takes place, and on the first ballot, Wilkie didn't do so well. Dewey got 360 votes, Taft 189, Wilkie 105. Vandenberg, the van did not do very well at 76. Then, second ballot comes. Dewey 338, Taft 203, and Wilkie 171. Vandenberg's toast. So his delegates start to spread out. The favorite son delegates are now going and spreading out. And Dewey is, is losing a little altitude. He's down from 360 to 338. Taft is up. Wilkie's up. This showed Dewey's weakness. And now he's plunging down, 250 on the fourth ballot and a mere 57 on the fifth ballot. Vandenberg's gone. It, it becomes a Taft and Wilkie battle. And as the voting is taking place, the supporters in the gallery start screaming, we want Wilkie. And it turns into a roar for Wilkie. You remember the, the 1964 
four convention where Goldwater supporters shout down Rockefeller. In that case, everybody knew the place was packed and it was going to be Goldwater's night. Here it's all up in the air. And so the shouting starts to build this sense of momentum for Wilkie. And it becomes such a problem that uh, the Taft men like freak out. Here's an article from the New York Times about this freak out. Taft accused Wilkie man of packing galleries. Philadelphia, June 26. Colonel R.B. Krieger, national committee man from Texas, Taft floor leader and a member of the Committee on Arrangements, and former Senator David A. Reed of Pennsylvania tonight charged that the galleries were packed with Wilkie supporters who led the demonstration. This investigation showed that the Committee on Arrangements had issued thousands of tickets. Colonel Krieger asserted that Samuel B. Pryor, chairman of the committee, had issued these tickets without authority from the committee. You issued them for the candidacy of your man Wilkie, Colonel Krieger told Mr. Pryor. You have perpetrated an outrage on the Republican Party and dealt unfairly with the other candidates. You will hear more of this. No other candidate knew of the issuance of these tickets. Well, that's all fine, but didn't work because Wilkie was the man of the moment. And here's the Herald Tribune with a front page editorial explaining why Wilkie was the man of the moment. This is why all those people were yelling, we want Wilkie. This is actually a New York Times story about the Herald Tribune front page nomination. And it reads, Herald Tribune demands Wilkie. Makes appeal to Republican convention in an editorial printed on first page. Heaven's gift to nation. Timing of man and the hour declares such as comes seldom in history. Under the heading Wendell Wilkie for president, the New York Herald Tribune printed in three-column space on its first page today the following appeal. The debate at Philadelphia has convinced this newspaper that the Republican convention of 1940 should nominate Wendell Wilkie for the presidency. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary abilities. By great good fortune, Mr. Wilkie comes before the convention uniquely suited for the hour and for the responsibility. First upon his list of qualifications, we place his ability to unite the nation. No other proof of this is needed than the unprecedented rise of his popularity among all sorts of people in every section of the country. The polls give mathematical corroboration to this fact. The political atmosphere at Philadelphia has made it equally clear. Functioning through volunteer workers, picking up political support out of personal conviction, the Wilkie campaign has been the despair of the experts. It has survived a whole series of carefully calculated attacks, and it is today going stronger than ever. We place first this extraordinary ability of Mr. Wilkie to inspire confidence in every type of human being, because it seems to us of first importance to the nation at this time. For the Republican Party, it offers the highest hope of success in November. Second among his qualifications stands his training and experience. As a skilled manager of production, upon a vast scale, he would bring to the presidency the precise executive equipment most urgently needed at this time. The convention could search the country through without finding anyone better qualified to direct the task of preparedness with all efficiency and speed. We place third on this list his fine qualities of mind and character. He has shown an extraordinary swiftness of imagination and accuracy of thought, which would be invaluable to the nation in determining the answers to the new and complex problems of foreign relations, of trade, of economics, which will unmistakably crowd the next four years. He has been generous and fair to everyone, whether rival or opponent. 
There is no meanness or pettiness in him as his long list of devoted friends testified. A man of the people, a Middle Westerner who knows all America, a Democrat for many years, a Republican by choice, he seems to us heaven's gift to the nation in its time of crisis. Such timing of the man and the hour does not come often in history. We doubt if it ever comes twice to a political party. We ask the Republicans assembled in Philadelphia to recognize their opportunity and accept it. We ask the convention to nominate Wendell Wilkie for the presidency. Now, why did I read all of that? Because look at the characteristics they are ascribing to this businessman who has not been involved in politics and came out of nowhere. His temperament and character and the friends he gathers to him and unity he creates, not the divisions he cleaves, and also his training and experience in a host of different kinds of businesses and his executive acumen. This is what an editorial pushing a business type candidate looks like. And so on the eve of the convention in Cleveland, we wonder if such an editorial would be forthcoming uh, for the Republican nominee who has business experience as well. It's hard to think Charlie Peters writes, of any other convention in American history in which the occupants of the balcony played a more meaningful role than they did at this one. So the we want Wilkie shouts rise up and ultimately he wins on the sixth ballot. Now we have audio of Wilkie accepting the nomination and now the conclusion. Charlie Peters makes an interesting point about Wilkie's nomination and how it helped unify the country for war. If Taft had been nominated... Peters argues, Taft would have vigorously opposed the efforts FDR made to aid the British and enact a military draft in the United States. That might have kept FDR from preparing the country for war, or at least maybe it would have slowed him because, of course, Pearl Harbor is in the future. But for now, FDR, in our narrative anyway, FDR hasn't even entered the presidential race. Wendell Wilkie has won, come out of nowhere, but we've got another chapter. And that's where we'll leave things for the moment until our next installment. Finally, an offer for all Whistle Stop listeners. In exchange for pre-ordering the book, Whistle Stop, by me, for which you are all responsible, you'll get a bootleg edition of Whistle Stop from Labor Day 2015. I recorded it in a closet while on vacation, when I used to take vacations, under a comforter. It was a look at the campaign as it stood in Labor Day of 2015, where it had been and where it was going to go forward. There was a problem in production, though, at the time, and we couldn't run it when we wanted to, and then it felt, by the time we worked all that out, it's kind of felt out of date. But now it's so out of date that it's historic. And some of, uh, some of it is right, some of it is wrong, and some of it is very wrong. If you'd like to listen to the bootleg Whistle Stop from Labor Day of 2015, pre-order Whistle Stop the book, Go to your or go to your favorite bookseller and pre-order it, and... Find some way to prove that you've made this early purchase. Then go to whistlestopbook.com. That's whistlestopbook, all one word, dot com, and fill out the pre-order form. Once you've done that, we'll send you a link to the historic oddity, and that will amuse, delight, and inform. Our producer for today's episode is Efim Shapiro. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who could drink Wendell Wilkie under the table while doing a flawless impersonation of Grover Cleveland. Don't forget to check out the working podcast about the White House after you've listened to this gem. But for now, 
I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll be back with you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.